Ascribe unto the Lord the honor due his name. Bring offerings and come into his courts. From the 96th Psalm, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. What is God do? What is God do? Not what does God do, what is God do? What do we owe God? Maybe that's not exactly the question raised in your mind as you listen to our readings from sacred scripture this morning. Maybe, in fact, it's a question the very form of which seems altogether quite strange to you. What is God do? What kind of a question is that? God loves me. I love him. Jesus died and rose for me, so I don't have to do anything, pay anything, give anything to God. I've been forgiven. I don't owe God anything. Isn't that the whole point? Yet we hear this morning from the prophet Malachi, from the psalmist, and the Lord Jesus himself in St. Matthew's Gospel that God does expect something from us. We are to give God what God is due, render unto God. I want to wrestle with this question a little bit this morning. What is God due? What shall we render unto God? I have no desire to undermine our belief in God's inexhaustible forgiveness and radically generous grace, but I want us to hear clearly sacred scripture's announcement that God does want something from us. Now, let's be clear. God does not need anything from us. Yet, in God's grace, we are welcomed into a relationship with God in which we have the opportunity to give God gifts, give what is due. It was the great medieval mind, St. Thomas Aquinas, who was perhaps the first theologian to consider this question in a sustained and systematic way. For him, to give God what is God's due is the form of a virtue, the virtue of religio or religion. Religion, says St. Thomas, is the most eminent among the moral virtues, akin to the virtue of justice, and wherein persons render unto God what is due to God as the source of all being and goodness. It is comprised, he says, of interior acts like devotion and prayer, as well as exterior ones like adoration and tithes, vows, sacrifices, and oblations. Religion as a virtue, says St. Thomas, denotes properly a relation to God. So you don't get any of that. uh, It's not a religion, it's a relationship in St. Thomas. It's a relationship because it's religion. Religion as a virtue, says St. Thomas, is the habit formed in us such that we rightly perceive who God is and respond with proper honor, recognition, and reverence. But what is God do? That's the question before us this morning, right? What does God want us to render unto him? And how in the world do we do that? How do we give God what is due? Well, our reading from the book of Malachi opens in the context of accusation. 
It resembles kind of a courtroom, a legal dispute going on. The prophet is clear. He announces the word of the Lord. The relationship between God and God's people, Israel, has been corrupted. Israel has turned away from the Lord. And of course, this is not a new problem. From the days of your fathers, says the Lord, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. But something is a little bit different this time, and a particular crime has been identified. Someone has been robbed. It's the Lord. Israel has stolen from God. Now, the Lord, reminding his people just how absurd that really is, rhetorically asks, will man rob God? As if to say, is that what you see any other people doing in their religious practice? Sure, they may be worshiping idols, but at least they get the fact that they are at the service of the gods, not the other way around. They offer gifts, offerings, sacrifices, yet you are robbing me, the Lord says. You have taken what belongs to God alone by way of theft and possessed it yourself. How, the people say, in your tithes and contributions, the Lord replies, God's people have been neglecting the tithe, the giving of the 10% under the law that's required of them. That one-tenth given back to God, not just as a sacrificial offering, but as a gift rendered for the maintenance of the temple, God's holy dwelling on earth, and its life and worship, as well as for the relief of the poor. The tithe was how Israelites gave back to God what, properly speaking, is already God's in the first place, so that it may be used and distributed for the worship of God and the care of God's people. In neglecting the tithe, Israel is stealing from the purse of God. Now, let's be fair. Israel is facing tough times. Locusts are destroying the crops. Drought has rendered the ground barren. Money is tight. And maybe cutting back a bit on the tithe, just to 8%, can help make sure we have enough food to get us through the end of the month, some might be thinking. But that impulse reveals a fundamental problem in the structure of Israel's life. It's a possessiveness driven by anxiety and self-protection. It reveals a distrust in God's covenant, God's promise that if Israel will trust God and remain faithful to the covenant, there will always be enough. God will sustain this people. I did not create the world in scarcity, the Lord says, but abundance. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. But if in fear and greed and possessiveness you hoard what belongs to me, what is to be given back to me, then you're not just robbing me, you've robbed yourselves of the grace of this covenant. In other words, in her refusal of generosity, in her withholding the gift, 
Israel has rendered herself unable to receive God's. And that's always the danger with greed. It's why Jesus is so insistent on it in his teaching. Greed corrupts and distorts our capacities to receive grace. Because insofar as we fail to trust God to care for us, insofar as we take matters into our own hands, we've rejected the very logic of grace itself. That God gives beyond anything we are due. It's the same theme running throughout the New Testament. Refusal to forgive others, to show hospitality to the stranger, to give alms to the poor, all of this is a sign that we've made our hearts unable, incapable of receiving the gifts and graces that God so freely wishes to give us. We rob God but not just of what God is due, we rob ourselves of receiving God's lavish gifts, his desire to bestow upon us his graces despite our being due nothing. In other words, God gives abundantly beyond anything we are due, and yet Israel fails to meet the minimum requirements of returning to God just a portion of what is God's own. But why this fuss about a tithe? Is God that petty that when Israel neglects the fullness of their offerings, he accuses them of theft, takes them to court, threatens judgment, demands full payment? Why is the Lord so outraged at this? There has to be something more going on here. What is really at stake in giving God what is God's due? That is exactly the question lingering in the background of Jesus's conflict with the Pharisees and the Herodians in St. Matthew's gospel. The careful readers of the gospel know that Jesus often responds to questions not so much by giving answers as he does by profoundly complicating the questions themselves. And this is definitely the case here in Jesus's confrontation with these Jewish religious leaders. Matthew tips us off in the beginning that something is not right here. The Pharisees were plotting, he says, how to entangle Jesus in his words. But even more than this, they have recruited some very unlikely companions for the task, the Herodians. So while the Pharisees were careful in their anti-Roman sentiments, unwilling to go as far as the zealots and advocate a kind of revolutionary revolt, they nonetheless scorned those Jewish authorities who cooperated with the pagan occupation of their land, the Herodians. Sure, the Pharisees had reluctantly endorsed the legitimacy of paying taxes to Caesar, against the desires of many Jewish commoners, we should say. But the Herodians represented something altogether different, cooperation with evil on a new level. They represented a fundamentally corrupt strategy, legitimizing and supporting the empire to reap the benefits for themselves. The Pharisees and the Herodians, in other words, are are political enemies, opponents, But 
the Democrats and the Republicans have a common interest here, at least, in getting rid of this Jesus character who seems to take neither side. So they pose to him a nearly impossible question. The imperial tax, pay it or not? Ears perk up a little bit. Passers-by stop in their tracks. How is Jesus going to answer this one? A simple yes would be a scandal, acquiescence to the imperial forces occupying God's holy land, and a betrayal of the suffering and crushed people to whom Jesus came to proclaim good news. But a simple no Well, that would invite the quick termination of Jesus' entire ministry, putting him far too prematurely on a cross. Preaching the refusal of taxes, that will get you killed. The Herodians would quickly assemble their friends in the Roman army, arrest Jesus, and put an end to it all right there. So what does Jesus do? Well, since his questioners are quite insincere, Jesus decides to play along a bit, giving them a taste of their own medicine. He asks for a coin, inquires whose image and inscription are on it. And as he holds it up, everyone would have seen the same thing, an image of Caesar, along with the words, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, or son of God, on one side, and on the other, high priest. Something to be carrying around in the temple. Jesus has a reason for asking about the image on the coin. The Hebrew scriptures had a lot to say about images. Some image image you are carrying around here in the temple, he seems to say. I thought there was a commandment somewhere about doing that sort of thing. In other words, this coin, in Jesus' estimation, is nothing other than a kind of portable idol. You don't go around carrying idols in your pockets in the temple. So having sufficiently embarrassed his antagonists a little bit, Jesus now offers his judgment. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But what kind of an answer is that? Well, let's start by saying what it clearly is not. Jesus is not saying that the world of money, of commerce, of worldly goods, economic exchange and consumption belongs to some secular domain of this worldly power, whereas what God cares about are spiritual matters, matters of the heart, the interior life. Too often, Jesus' teaching is read in a kind of binary vision of the world that tries to divide it up between sacred and profane, spiritual and secular, immaterial and material, and that's about the farthest thing from Jesus' mind. Jesus is not making a distinction between sacred and secular, but between idol and creation. Because, of course, the obvious answer to this question, what are the things that are God's, is everything, all creation. That's what we say every week in the creed, is it not? We believe in God, creator of heaven and earth, of all that is, visible and invisible. 
It's the first lines of the Christian scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the confession of the chronicler. All things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. All that is, is God's. Anything that is not God's is just an idol. So Jesus' instruction is quite simple. Give back the idols. That's, in the Greek, kind of literally what he says. Give back to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God everything. That's what God is due. Everything. Now, of course, that teaching is as simple as it is unimaginably difficult. Jesus calls us to live without idols in a world demanding our worship of so many. It's a radical call, but it is a call to freedom because Jesus does not offer to us a set of strategies for budgeting, no rules or regulations for buying and selling, and certainly no tax policy. Instead, he calls us to virtue, the virtue of religio, we might say. Give to God what is God's due, everything. He'll leave it up to us to figure out what that means. But the principle is clear. There's nothing that is not God's. And in every act, give to God what is God's due. In every action, every public exchange, public work, private doing, give back to God in worship. Offer back to God in praise the good creation he has given us in grace. Let nothing become an idol. Do everything, offer everything as worship. Give God what is God's due. Everything. Now that is not very prescriptive, to be sure, or concrete. And especially on a Sunday in which we're talking about pledges and ties, not a very helpful teaching. We're still left with a question. How? How do we give God God's due? The reality is there are as many ways to give God what God is due as there are creations in this world. Because any created good, the whole created world itself, has the potential to be offered back to God as a gift. But, since it is a kind of uh, tithing Sunday, let me suggest a couple of ways that you can give God what is God's due. Let's get specific for a minute. First, give to the work of God's church in mission. Give your money your time, your prayers, your efforts to the things God cares about. And what is that? But reconciling the world to himself. Look, God does not desire the accumulation of tithes and offerings and goods for a kind of his own store, his own kind of storehouse. He wants to give them back to God's world distribute them abundantly to God's world to draw all creatures back to himself. Give to God's church 
and mission. Second, give to the poor and to the afflicted. Give of your resources, your income, your presence, your attention, and your care to our afflicted brothers and sisters. I want to tell you, you can be absolutely sure that when you do that, you are rendering to God what is God's due. Why? Because Jesus says it himself. Just a couple of chapters after our reading from today. What does Jesus say? But when you give to the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, and all the afflicted persons who bear his countenance, you're giving directly to him. You're making an offering to Jesus himself. We are giving to God what is God's due. Third, and maybe most importantly, give yourself. Give your whole self in devotion, in prayer, in adoration, in worship. Every day, give your whole self to the Lord Jesus. In other words, it's simple. Love him. That's what it means to give God God's due. Love him. I promise you, you cannot give Jesus more love. You cannot love him more than he deserves. Give all of you, everything you have and everything you are, to Christ in love. Give to God all, for it is all that God is due. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.